I'm Carrie Miller, and this is a show about big books and bold ideas. For the raw and painful years after Kat Chow's mother died, she hid pictures of her mother away, unable to take comfort in the images of their time together. The way I endured grief, Miss Chow writes, was to think only of the after and not the before. Kat Chow's new memoir tells the story of the deep loss of a parent's passing, the shape of the family that remains, and what it means to finally write of that loss. She confides to her mother, writing about you is a strange act itself. I am perhaps afraid of it, or at least I dread it. Kat Chow is a former reporter at National Public Radio. Her new book is titled Seeing Ghosts, a Memoir. And she joins us this morning. And Kat Chow, welcome. It's good to have you on Thank the show. You. Thank you so much for having me on. So um, did you dread writing about your mother's death because the details of it and the absence of her in the years that followed would would make it real in a way that for years, you were able to kind of push away. Mm, yes, I think so. And I think as a writer and as a journalist, when you are putting something into words, it does make it so visceral in a way where you really can't turn away and you can't hide from these ideas or these memories. And so much of this book is about the excavation of memories itself and the process of it and trying to understand how other family members make make sense of the same thing. And so I knew that writing this book would be a challenge because it would mean that I would really have to face these moments in my own family's history. Excavating memories is always a tricky thing, isn't it? Because yes. you're testing your true recall. You're testering, testing all the emotional layering that you've put on top of that. How did you think about that? Oh, wow. I love the way you put that as in, you know, you're testing the emotional layering because that's so accurate to describe how memories work, really. I mean, for example, the last time, um, when you think of a memory, it's really the last time you thought about something. So me recalling a playful moment that I had with my mother of her making this joke about, you know, after she passed, she'd like to be put in my future apartment um, and and stuffed. That <laughs> joke, I mean, so that that's a joke that she made before she even knew that she was sick. And that was sort of her wistfully trying to, you know, inject a playfulness into my life. I was only nine. Um, but me remembering this and recalling this is is really the last time I thought about that moment and not really, you know, the memory from when I was nine years old. And so I think with seeing ghosts, I wanted to show that excavation and I wanted to show the process of what it means to unearth this memory and make sense of it and to really try to inhabit it again. Um, and I, I found that a really profound and beautiful process. I found that the more I read about the science of memory, the more I interrogate the truth and the emotion of the memories that are important to me. And and this sounds kind of weird, but it takes some of the pleasure away from just, you know, being enveloped in the memory. Like, yeah. You know, my father died a couple of years ago. And now when I think about important moments with him, 
I think, is this just the way I'm crafting the memory? Did this really happen? How much does it matter? I love that you shared that. I mean, I think that's so true. And I think that that's why I wanted to write Seeing Ghosts with so much self-awareness, because I understood that as long as I was getting to the emotional truth of this book, then that would be an honest memoir for me, where the events I think are accurate. But, you know, I mean, I was interviewing my father for this book. I was interviewing my sisters. And sometimes the the recall that we had of the same memory um, was so different. For example, I had a baby brother who was born two years before me, and he unfortunately passed two hours after his birth. And I I knew that I wouldn't be able to write about this from my own experiences because I wasn't alive. And I knew that I couldn't interview my mother because she also wasn't, she's no longer around. And so to sort of recover this story of my brother, Jonathan, I had to interview my sisters who were quite young when he passed and my father who had not spoken of him in decades. And so in order to do this, I was sort of extricating memories from them and and realizing that they all had different recollections of his burial or, for example, when he was cremated. And I mean, this is sort of a very stark example, but I included their different recollections as part of this story. And I think that's what makes Seeing Ghosts to me so meaningful because it's it's become this archive of family memory and family history that I find so, so special. You know, your father is a really intriguing figure in the memoir. I was going to talk about this a little later, but 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 I think I think this is important to understand as we talk about kind of the tenor of where he enters in to the story. He his approach to loss, he's endured a lot of it, seems mm-hmm. much more matter of fact. He tells you at one point If you're 40 or 70 or 100, everyone dies. It's just a fact of life. I know you understand much more about what all that, what's happening behind, you know, something like that. How would you describe what loss really means to him, not the face that he presents to the world? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think... When I set out to write this book, I knew that it wasn't really a memoir about grief, um, more so about loss that my family as immigrants from Hong Kong and China experienced over generations. And I think for my father, I understood quickly in the process, um, mostly because my editor pointed out that he and I have so many parallels between us Hmm. in terms of the loss that we've experienced and and the grief that we've seen, and, and my mother too. And so when I set out to write this book, I knew that it would be a matter of trying to understand and empathize and and carve out the similarities between us. So my father lost both of his parents and lost them in ways where there was so much distance. And I also knew that when I was writing about the different ghosts, so to speak, in my family, my mother as a ghost, of course, which makes a lot of sense, but my father too, in terms of the the disconnects and distance between us, I knew that I was really writing about how I learned to experience loss from him Mm -hmm. and and also how I, um, you know, sort of saw the differences and the changes and shifts and how we interacted with one another, but how we also interacted with the spaces that people left behind over the years. 
So the way I was thinking about it today, actually, the way my father spoke to me about my mom passing when I was 13 was just a matter of him trying to survive and parent me and also get through it because I think grief is such an act of survival. And then I understood later as I was writing this book that he was, as I was an adult, more willing to share experiences of you know, him dreaming of the loss of his mother when he was in his uh, 20s or 30s and him recalling sort of the feeling and emotion behind it. And I'm not sure exactly now what changed in my father and what made him more willing, but I think that there's something to be said about the ways in which we get older and we, we feel closer perhaps to our losses and we feel more willing to, to share them with each other. Okay, I have so many questions about what you've said, but <laughs> um, here's, here's one of the things that I, I guess I, I wondered as your, as your father emerged in the memoir. It seems that he has told him, now tell me if this is not true, but it seems like he has told himself that he is comfortable with the presence of these ghosts with this loss in his life. But, but I, I also got the sense that that is really about not reckoning with the, the depth of loss, that he's not as at ease with a life that's characterized by this much loss and these many ghosts, as, as he would say. If he ever hears this, he's going to be like, how did this end up being all about me? But what um, what would you say? I think he was a bit surprised that so much of this book was about him. But I think, <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, I think I wanted to use this book in a way to show, well, hopefully a, a beautiful narrative about my family, but to understand him and also to capture his complexity. And I mean, I, I'm not sure I would say that he didn't quite want to face his loss. I think that for him, so much of the years after my de- my mother's death were trying to survive and, and hold the family together in his own way. Mm. Um, and I, I thought that it would be useful to trace his loss, to, to show the ways it manifested over decades and generations. And I mean, really, grief is just an act of persisting through such an enormous loss. And I think so much of his life was shaped by it, by it that he that he understood it and knew it. And it was just, as you were saying, so matter of fact, so essential to how he lived. That makes sense to this to this other question I wanted to ask you, which is, you've said this is not a memoir so much of grief as it is about loss. But Mm -hmm. one of the other things I felt like you were putting a voice to is how enduring and stealthy grief can be that (laughs) after a certain amount of time, you know, you, the world has naturally moved on and you are mostly enduring that grief of whatever that loss is by yourself. And it I know a lot of people say this, it comes to you in the most unusual and unexpected moments. I mean, do you feel like even though your family experienced this loss of your mother and your dad's wife, that there were times when this felt very lonely? I think 
loss became such a big part of my identity. I mean, I mean, I should be speaking in present tense because it still is. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book in such a fragmented way, because I wanted to show the ways in which memories of childhood or my mother or our history or the context even surrounding specific aspects of her death would just appear in my life. And I mean, you know, one of the the lines that I wrote was, I hate her death for how it knocked my family down, but I hate also how I believe I needed it to become who I am. Mm. And I think when you lose a parent or when you lose someone so pivotal to you at such a young age, it becomes so much of who you are. And we are so shaped inextricably by our losses in ways that we can't see or predict. And I think as a child and as a teenager and even as a young adult in my 20s, I understood this, but I didn't quite know how to put words to it. And I felt myself gravitating toward these inextricable ways that loss just become so merged with our senses of selves. And I, I found myself, you know, in my reporting just pursuing these stories about intergenerational loss or or things of that nature. And it really was until I came across this concept of racial melancholia, which um, some Asian American scholars really, um, they, they sort of coined that term and they were expanding on something that Sigmund Freud wrote in 1917 when he was writing about mourning and melancholia, where mourning had this end in sight and a person in mourning had a grief that adhered kind of to a specific person or object. But melancholia in this respect was this ongoing state. And the melancholic person may know that they've lost something, but they might not know exactly what. And I was so just drawn to that as a concept because I think it specifically resonated with my family's experience and mine too. It is one of the scholars that you're talking about, uh, Anne Ann Lin Cheng, who writes yes. about, yeah, mm-hmm. writes about melancholy and being an an immigrant family. Right, the melancholy of race. They try to uh, invent a new way of being while always seeking a home within negative space. I read that as the absence of one's home country as an ongoing kind of desolation. Will you you tell me how you read it? I mean, I think that was that was my interpretation of um, what she was writing about in terms of how for from and I'll speak to my family more specifically. I felt as though when my mother passed, it it just opened up so many ways in which we were both isolated, but also searching for ways to really exist and to fill in the gaps of her loss, but also the gaps of what it meant to be um, immigrants from Hong Kong and China in in Connecticut, where I grew up. And we were always trying to forge ways to reinvent ourselves, but also hold on to the, the very important cultural aspects of what it meant to be our family, Chows in Connecticut. And I think there was always this inherent but beautiful um, tension in what it meant to survive, but also seek joy and try to thrive in our family. You know, when I think about those stories, I, I think there are more spaces for those stories now, thank God. But I also think that they 
much of America just isn't all that interested in the before. And mm. and I wonder if the consequence of that is there just are not that many play unless you're going to do what you've done or you have the kind of platform to tell that story. Uh, I just feel like a lot of America says, yeah, but what about now? You're here now. What? I, I guess I... I guess I'm fumbling for what if those stories were more real and present Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. in a lot of other places. And it didn't feel like this is kind of the story that we harbor within our family and we only tell it to each other. What if there was more interest in that? I think that's changed. What do you think? I've always turned to history, whether it's the history of, you know, a a man named Yang Wing, who was one of the first, um, you know, Chinese American, as as it was, as people say, um, immigrants to graduate from Yale. And he graduated in the 1800s before Chinese American identity was even called such. And so I think I'm always interested in history as a way to reflect our present, whether it's history from decades ago or a more personal history. And I think that's so important. And um, I think that if you reflect back on the ways in which our lives kind of mirror the lives that came before, it Mm -hmm. is so useful as an exercise of trying to understand our present and and see the ways in which, you know, I mean, not to say that history is always repeating itself, but we can take so much from the experiences of other people who came before. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a new show about big books and bold ideas. And Kat Chow is our guest. We're talking about her new memoir, Seeing Ghosts. Um, I I really love the story of how your parents met and how your father, your mother's family <laughs> gave your dad I know this is not just like some big theme in the memoir, but I want to talk about this because these stories are wonderful. And I started thinking about why kids love to hear those stories about the serendipity of parents meeting and the obstacles <laughs> that their love confronted. And you, right. your parents have a story kind of like that. Will you just tell us a bit about how they met and, you know, formed the family that you'd become a part of. Sure. I was always drawn to sort of the mythology of how my parents met or came to be a unit. And they met in Manchester, Connecticut, which is a suburb of Hartford. And they met sometime in, you know, their 20s when they were both had freshly moved there. And a mutual friend had a tag sale, as we say it in the Northeast. Um, and they both went and sort of understood that they had this connection, perhaps because they were one of few Cantonese speakers there. And that began the start of their courtship. And I, I always, you know, I mean, when I was thinking about this story and trying to write about it, I understood that there were so few details that I actually knew. And so I spoke to my father about it and I wanted to know, you know, (laughs) did you meet while you were both trying to buy the same mug? (laughs) Did Did you meet over a chair or a wardrobe or a dresser? What was it? Did you even buy anything? Was it really just, you know, this friend trying to set you up or what do you remember about my mother? And it was so fascinating to try and 
extract these details from him, but I loved, I loved even just his simple retelling of it because, I mean, it, it puts you into the mindset of what your parents expected or hoped for when they, when they were younger. And as a writer trying to unearth these stories, I found that so crucial. I know. I mean, you know, I love the way you put that, the mythology of your parents' meeting. Because, you know, I remember my mother used to tell the story about how her mother came in on the eve of the wedding and Mm -hmm. sat down in her bed that night and said, if you don't get married tomorrow, we'll buy you a car and you can go back to college. And that was part of the... Wow. I know. They got married. (laughs) Here I am. (laughs) But that was part of the mythology and this idea that their love was indomitable and nothing could stop them from being together, even though they divorced, you know, 25 years later. But um, as kids, we love to have that sense, don't we? And I wonder why. Yeah, I mean, I think we want to know the origin story, or at least I've always been interested in that. What about my parents drew them together? But also, where where did I really come from in a lot of ways? And um, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm always so drawn to looking toward the past to understand the present. Where did we come from? What made us? What were the circumstances around these origins? Where's the difference, would you say, in the way your father told that story and the way your mother would tell the story of how oh. they met and how they yeah. got together? <laughs> I'm trying to imagine it right now. I think my mom's retelling would be really funny mm-hmm. and self-deprecating. Um, and I think she would remember specific details. And I think that's what's so what was so challenging about writing this book is I couldn't ask her these questions, you know, and I'm sure her answers would have provided so much texture. And also it would have illuminated so much about her personality and and all of these things that I couldn't understand when I knew her as a child, you know, and I think I think that's what made this book also so important for me to kind of weave in this dialogue to her. Some of this book is addressed to my mother directly. So it feels as though I'm in conversation to her and and yearning and longing and trying to speak to her about these events of our lives and this history. And I loved this direct address. But then at the same time, I knew that there would be this implicit distance because she could never talk back, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. What it, what has been revealed to you about your mother? I, I guess, mm-hmm. and I don't mean this in a sense of all those questions that we don't get a chance to ask when we lose a parent, but just more that you might have never had a conversation about this, but you understand her in a way now that that you've you've been through this process. Yeah, I think it was so much of talking to family members about her, her old coworkers or friends, for example, that when I when I approached this project, I knew that there would be so much of her that would be unknown. And I think that's a really hard thing to admit, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't really know your parents or how much can you really know someone. And as I wrote this book, I felt as though if I couldn't know her fully, then at least I could have the facts of her life and some texture that would allow me to kind of 
imagine her, you know, in these mm-hmm. other ways. And we, we talked about how when I was younger, it was harder to face her and to face this grief. But now that, I mean, and I don't, I don't think that this book was exactly cathartic because I see it almost as this, if I may say, this artistic process that hopefully is really beautiful and, and writing it was so challenging. And, you know, it it really was this narrative I worked hard to create. But at the same time, it helped me understand my mother in so many new ways where her, her legacy and this image of her can, can kind of live on with me. And as I get older and as I go through different life experiences, you know, talking to my husband about what it means to have children in the future or, or what childbirth could be like, it's, it's easier for me to picture my mother's response to questions that I might have in those situations. And I think that's actually really profound and touching. And I mean, thinking about it right now kind of makes me a little teary because it's, it's a way the the person who is no longer there can kind of live on in not a, not even in just memory but mm-hmm. the present mm-hmm. and i i was sort of startled to realize that you know i mean it, it sounds like you i i kind of wonder how you began and then where you got to in the midst of this did you begin thinking more will be revealed i will understand my mother in a way that that i i wouldn't and then you got into the middle of it and you kind of had the realization you've just described, which is yeah, it is difficult to acknowledge that as a child, you will never fully understand your parents. What, what was that evolution like? I think at the start, I might have just thought and sort of arrogantly assumed I knew enough about my mother you know, that, um, that I had all the information and context to write this book as it was. And then I think, you know, what we were talking about with memories earlier, I understood that, of course, my perspective wasn't just the only one that could tell the story and that there was so much more that I was missing. And so it was a matter of really, really trying to see my mother from all of her angles or as many as I could. And that was really freeing in a lot of ways. I think it's brave, too. Oh, thank you. Mm. Did you did you have a sense of that? There may be facets of the of, of things that you learn about your mother that would disrupt the memory, right? The validity of some of those memories or change the way you think about the way she fit into the family. Oh, absolutely. I think this book forced me to confront how my mother really, you know, she struggled so much with so many different aspects of what it meant to be a mother and what it meant to be a wife or a daughter. And hearing similar family narratives brought up by her sister or her brother or my father or her or, or my sisters allowed me to see the ways in which my mother felt so much pressure to provide everything for us kids and to really sort of assert herself in America and show to her family that she had made it Mm -hmm. and in many ways made it on her own. And, you know, as a 13-year-old, I I didn't really see that or I couldn't understand that exactly the same way. And, And now that I'm an adult who pays bills and understands things in a different way, I, I see this so much more and it, 
it sort of, it, it shatters me in a lot of ways, but also it makes me in awe of how my mother managed her life. You know, as you've noted, you ask a lot of questions. And this this question just, uh, I don't know, it felt like a knife to the heart. What is a good daughter? Mm-hmm. I never asked, I've been a daughter for a long time. I've never asked myself that question. How did that, how'd that come up? What's Yeah, what you, I still wonder that to a degree. I mean, do you? what does it mean to be truly, you know, a, a good daughter? And sometimes on certain days I think it's, oh, it's my ability to take care of my parents. Or, oh, it's my ability to hold their stories and empathize and understand them. Or it's my ability to provide for them. And I think it's a combination of all of that. But when I asked that in the book, it was to sort of resurrect this <laughs> this story or this narrative that my father loved to tell about my sisters and me and <laughs> um, how when we were small children, he really got it into his head that we needed to learn the multiplication tables <laughs> up to 20. Uh-huh. And we needed to memorize them to be able to recite, you know, 17 times 17, um, which I actually don't know off of the top of my head right now. <laughs> but <laughs> the the story went that my sister, Steph, who is the oldest, was so diligent and great at memorizing it. And she was on, we were only five or six or so when um, he first had us do this. And she would just sort of astound her teachers with this knowledge. And my middle sister, Caroline, um, would sort of, you know, cry a little bit or hide or not want to do it, but then eventually do it. And for me, the baby of the family, I would just simply sit there and refuse. Um, Hence why I don't know 17 (laughs) times 17. (laughs) But I think in a way that story, you know, my father would tell it, but as an adult thinking back on it, for me, I realized so much of it was about my sister's willingness to sort of bend to my father and listen Mm -hmm. to him and also um, kind of follow his instruction and, and, and see that. And, you know, what is a good daughter? I'm still trying to figure that out right now. And, um, I think it's so much of trying to be there and trying to close the distance between, between us and our parents in so many ways. You know, I I love that story of the way you each learned or didn't learn the multiplication tables. But, you know, I also read that as your dad acknowledging, marveling maybe in some ways and acknowledging that he and your mother made three very different daughters. Yes. All extraordinary, each in their own ways, right? And But I mean, it kind, kind of coming to terms with that. I, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I love that interpretation. It's very <laughs> generous, Carrie. I, I appreciate that. I mean, yes, I think that... Um, my sisters and me are so different and um, it's, it's kind of incredible how we've formed this unit and that we came from the same parents. And I love that so much. So the other thing that I, that I gave some thought to about that question is what is a good daughter is it occurs to me that I think we ask that maybe too late. It's the kind of thing that, you know, in my dad's final weeks I probably gave some thought to, but it's not the kind of thing that through a life when time is moving on and, you know, and your parents are present that you 
that you ask yourself. Maybe that's because the answers are uncomfortable and you might have to wrestle them out with with your living parents. I don't know. Why do you think we wait so long to ask a question mm. like that? You know, when you were talking about that, I mean, just sort of asking yourself that later on, it reminded me of this quote that I write about toward the end of the book. And it's a quote from The Paper Menagerie, which is a short story by the writer named Ken Liu. And mm. I'm paraphrasing now, but he basically says, do you know what the Chinese think is the saddest emotion? It's the desire to take care of a parent, but only realizing that it's too late. And that hit me so hard when I oh, read that, that for the first devastating. time. It devastated me. I mean, I think that's why so much of this book winds up being about my dad and it feels so searching. And, you know, this book is structured like a ghost story, of course, and it's propelled by these ideas of what we owe our parents and in a way, to some degrees, the unfinished things that we have promised to them. So in my mom's case, it was reburying my brother um, to be closer to her grave. In my father's case, it was fulfilling his parents' last wishes to be buried near each other. And there's a whole story about, you know, his father remaining in Cuba and being mm -hmm. buried there um, and his mother winding up um, her remains buried in a cemetery in Toronto. And I think, you know, watching my father try and fulfill his parents' last wishes later in life in the past decade, while also trying to fulfill my mother's last wishes, um, which was to be buried closer to her her baby son, I understood that so much of, you know, I think having in my, my family's eyes a meaningful life, because we are so close to one another, is propelled by trying, even in their last moments, or even when it might seem too late, to, to carry out our, our parents or family members' last wishes. And I found that to be, you know, at, at first wondering, I, th I think the ideas of, is it too late to do this? It, it was really hurtful, you know, where, I mean, as you said, devastating, where I, I don't know if this parent will be around to experience the labor that I've taken or the pains that I've taken or, or the reparations in a way and, and the amount of repair that goes into um, doing something that they've wanted. And I realized that, you know, for my family who believes in ancestor worship, so to speak, or believes in this act of appeasing the spirits, whether or not you think of the spirits as literal or sort of, you know, this, this way of experiencing grief, I found that so helpful. You know, my mother might not be around, but there are still things that I can do for her. And I find that to be very comforting. That's such a beautiful way to put it, Kat. Um, I have to say, the story of your father's return to Cuba, the family mm -hmm. goes and then your father goes back. And I mean, that would make an incredible memoir, novel, I don't story, I don't care what I'd read that 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 is, in and of itself, just an extraordinary occurrence. Yeah, I mean, I so my grandfather um, on my on my dad's side, my paternal grandfather, was one of thousands of um, Chinese men 
in sometime in the 1920s or 1930s. We actually don't know specifically when, but he left the Pearl River Delta area of China um, to, to work in Cuba because simply, I think one of the reasons was that the United States in that time was not allowing immigrants from China to, to enter um, because of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. And so this made my grandfather have to seek other ways to earn a living and support his family. And so the story goes, he worked in, I think, seven different Chinese restaurants or was part owner of seven different Chinese restaurants in Havana and would send remittances back to Cuba or back to um, China, where my my father and his mother lived. And my father never knew his dad. And his father became this kind of myth to him. And it was only until my dad got older that he realized that he had the means and the desire and the ability to travel to Havana and search for the remains of his dad. And this became this undertaking that was so, you know, (laughs) it was stressful because I, as a daughter, wanted to protect my dad and, and the idea that he might not find his father's remains could be so shattering. But eventually, I mean, and I don't, I don't want to spoil it, but eventually there was some closure for my father and learning about Cuba and traveling to Cuba and getting to write about the history of Chinese Cubans for seeing ghosts was so special. And I think that that was a lot of why I understood from the start that this this book would not just be a family history, but also it would weave in the history and context of so many other aspects of our lives and that I could use my skills as a reporter to provide answers in ways that I might not get. So are there still questions that you think will animate the work that you do from here? I mean, are there questions that came up in this in this reporting and interrogation of your family and the interviews um, that linger in some ways that that may be influential in the work that comes next? I love that question. I think one of the things that I've been thinking about now as I'm considering other projects and, and starting to write for my, my own self again is um, who are the people who animate us and what experiences do we always linger on? And also, what does the idea of extinction? I think I think I've been thinking a lot about that word extinction with especially what's happening right now in this country with climate change and mm-hmm. and everything linked to that. But what does extinction mean in a family? And what does it mean when specific traditions are no longer carried forward? Or when our livelihoods are no longer there or our senses of home, whether it's physical or whether it's, you know, something more symbolic, vanish. And I think that idea of extinction and and how that expresses itself throughout the many, many facets of our lives is so interesting. And there's so much tension inherent in it. My gosh, that could keep you, that could keep you busy in writing for the rest of your (laughs) life. I mean, that is a... As, as you're describing that, I'm thinking, do we in families let go of some of these traditions, let them go extinct because they weren't important enough? We didn't understand that in the moment. Once they're gone, are they forever gone? Right. right? Can you right. resurrect 
a tradition that is meaningful, does it inevitably change because you're doing that in a contemporary context? Yes. Or even just, is it possible to fight extinction in in specific ways? I mean, is this, are we fighting something bigger than ourselves? What acts can we do to really make a difference? If if we're talking about cultural preservation Mm -hmm. or, or something of that nature, how much effort does it take to really, for example, preserve a language or preserve a set of family traditions? Um, but if we're thinking on a bigger level of like climate change, for example, what does that actually take on a personal level? And I, I mean, of course, we could talk about all those answers, but for seeing ghosts and for the way I think about these narratives, I'm so interested in the act of um, the act of persistence and survival in the face of existence and extinction. No, oh, I was thinking about this because I was listening to the audiobook of Robin Wall. Kimmerer's uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. And in one of the passages, she writes about this experience of in the summer bringing together everybody who speaks this, you know, language that if they don't, if they aren't careful is going to go extinct. And being in the room and asking the people that still were fluent in this language to stand up and like nine people in the entire world still speak this language. And this discussion that is constantly going on within this tribe and larger community about the value of it, what it means to have younger members learn that language or not be interested in learning that that language, hanging on to this in in a way that it may take a long time for people to see the value of that. Yeah, or the devastation of it too. That's right. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. a beautiful anecdote and that is a that is a book I've been wanting to read and I oh. think it it just sounds like it would resonate so much and my Absolutely. heartstrings are being pulled. <laughs> oh my gosh. And um I listen I read a lot of the printed page but I'm telling you her voice and her phrasing and inflection in listening to Braiding Sweetgrass. Can't be matched. Anyway, Kat, <laughs> oh, I highly recommend it. Um, would you choose an excerpt, anything you like, uh, to read from Seeing Ghosts? I would just love to hear it in your voice, if that's okay. Sure, absolutely. So this is a passage that comes from shortly after my mother passed and I'm in high school and really trying to make sense of what my day-to-day life is like. And people, of course, as as happens naturally after you lose someone, are coming to my family's house and they're trying to offer casseroles or, or words of comfort. And so here it is. Hours later, swaddled in the prayer blanket, I turned this woman's words over in my head. Watching over you wouldn't want you to be sad. Other adults, the guidance counselors at school, neighbors, said similar things. I often didn't respond. When I did talk, I blurted out details of her death, regardless of how they fit into conversation. That she technically died of cardiac and respiratory arrest and not cancer. Her passing was relevant to everything. I spoke in chronic caps lock. My mother died just two weeks ago. 
and I noticed that adults often struggled to find the right words, unsettled by my abrupt declarations, then concerned that I smiled earnestly to prove I was okay. My guidance counselor wrote me a hall pass that I could use whenever I wanted, which I flashed liberally until I graduated. I used it to lie in the nurse's office and stare at the ceiling when I found class boring. I napped, I cried, I wrote in a notebook and sketched poems about my mother's death that I would later share with my English teachers for feedback. This act allowed me to express what I could not, or did not want to, say at home. In conversations like, like the ones at, in conversations like the ones at our front door, adults tested their consolation. She'd want you to be happy, not suffering. I couldn't blame them for saying such things, but each time someone said my mother was watching over us and would have wanted us to be happy, I privately disagreed. To have been happy would have been to disrespect her life. After all, we were only just surveying the rubble after the catastrophe. We understood now how everything had shifted. There would be no more visits with our mother. No more visits with our mother's family. No more of her cooking. No more talks about our futures and how we needed to do more. No more burrowing into her shoulders for hugs. And from the practical mind of a 13-year-old, there would be no more horseback riding after the checks my mother had written before her death ran out. Still, those assurances. She's watching over you. She's with you every day. She's everywhere. She's alive in your memories. Despite myself, I took their words literally, my newborn grief latching onto every word. My imagination gorged itself on this hope. Kat Chow reading from her new memoir, Seeing Ghosts. Um, a couple questions about about work and reading and books. Are you <laughs> it sounds like you have now you spent some years at National Public Radio. You helped start yes. Code Switch, right? Mm-hmm. Are you pulling more into written journalism? What's I mean, it's a pleasure to hear your voice. I wonder if you're if you're moving away a bit from audio journalism. What's Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I would love to continue doing both, and I think that the written word and expressing myself through writing has always been something I've gravitated to. But I also think that there is such an intimacy in radio. You know, mm-hmm. the act of you and I speaking mm-hmm. is is so lovely. And I love hearing about your experiences and the ways you're engaging with this work. And I mean, not to say that that doesn't happen in in the written word, but I think it happens in a different way. And so I love that. And I want to, in the future, as I move forward with my career, continue both because I think each medium has so much to offer. I'm happy to hear that. I, <laughs> I, I kind of miss your voice on national public radio, but it sounds like you've got all the opportunities that you want for. So is it is it long form writing that you're more um, maybe some fiction? I don't know. I'm just I'm curious about what's a little ahead. bit of everything. I mean, <laughs> I would love one day to write a novel, but I think I have a lot more books in me. And that's so exciting to say. I mean, oh, <laughs> I, I haven't actually, you know, I think you're getting the scoop because I don't, <laughs> I don't speak about that publicly because it feels, it feels so vulnerable to say I would like to do something like this again. Um, when this book took so much out of me. 
but I, I hope I have a long career ahead of me in writing. Um, if, if it's long form, I would be so happy. And if it's writing more books, I would be so thrilled. I mean, you can say, maybe you've, maybe you've already said, I'm a writer now. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, have you ever interviewed authors who it takes, it, maybe they've published three novels and they still wince a little bit at telling people, I'm a writer now. I, I wonder yeah, I why. Can, yeah, I can understand that. I think the word for me that is still new is author. I mean, mm. just having this book out in the world, I'm still, it feels so surreal. You know, this book came out weeks ago and people are messaging me and telling me about how it resonated with them or how it changed how they experience something so personal. And it it sort of, it surprises me in the best way each time. And I love hearing from readers and it makes the experience of being a capital A author. <laughs> it makes it more real, you know? Right. I mean, and that may happen for months or years, right? This book will land in the hands of somebody who at the moment doesn't have it, doesn't have the opportunity to read it. And the influence and impact of what you've written, you know, could change a life two years from now. That's that's kind of, that's a little boggling to think about, isn't it? <laughs> I certainly hope that will happen. <laughs> <laughs> Kat, um, is there a book in the last 12 months that, you know, if we were to meet and I don't know, I was standing in front of your bookshelves, wherever they are, that you'd push this book into my hands and say, this is the one that I've loved. Look at the dog ears on it. Look at the faded cover. Is there a book in your possession like that? There is a poetry collection called Ghost of by the poet Diana Coy Wynn, which I have turned to time and time again. It is so much about loss, but it's it's so beautiful. She's a poet who I've actually written about in Seeing Ghosts, and her writing is just so profound and beautiful, and it changed me. And she writes into the negative space of grief and loss that we've been talking about. And I found that so impactful, and I read her work constantly over and over. Can I ask you to read one other thing? And it, it is that beautiful Ada Limon instructions on not giving up passage that you put in the very beginning of the book. It's the greening of the trees that really gets to me. Patient, plodding, a green skin growing over whatever winter did to us. A return to the strange idea of continuous living, despite the mess of us, the hurt, the empty. Fine, then, I'll take it, the trees seem to say, a new slick leaf unfurling like a fist to an open palm. I'll take it all. That's really beautiful. So I'd never seen it before, and I wondered what it was that, you know, that spoke to you about it, how it ended up here. I found that to be such a beautiful poem of persistence. The poem itself is titled Instructions on Not Giving Up. And I think, you know, we've, I think that 
as I was saying before, grief is so much about survival and being American and also being the daughter of immigrants is so much about survival, but also insisting that your life can be full of joy and that your life can be so much more than the circumstances that, that changed you or shaped you or challenged you. And I wanted to insist on that from the beginning. I found it hopeful and beautiful. And I, I loved that it really forced me to imagine and and gravitate towards something so beautiful. I mean, it sounds like poetry sustained you. Maybe, maybe it always has. Is that true? I think so. And I think early on in high school, after my mother died, I was fortunate enough to have two English teachers in particular in Connecticut who really encouraged both poetry, but also reading more generally. I had an English teacher my freshman year who gave me a copy of Annie Dillard's The Writing Life, which I still have. And yeah, and it was so grounding. And I mean, Annie Dillard is, you know, she she writes um, nonfiction and novels, of course, but there was something so poetic about her work in general. And I would read it and reread it. And I might not understand it as a 13-year-old, but it stuck with me. And I still have that copy today that I read. (laughs) And so poetry and and writing in general has always been really profound and grounding for me. And does that copy of that Annie Dillard book that you're, does your teacher know how much you've cherished that book over <laughs> the does, years? Actually. <laughs> she she has emailed me, um, especially a few times in the past few months as this book has published. And it has been so wonderful hearing from her and getting to share with her how much she has meant to me. And does it sit in pride of place on your bookshelf? It does. It does. It's in a special spot. Kat, I've loved this. Thank you so much. Wow. It just it feels like a luxury to have an hour to talk to you about this. So thank you. Thank you so much, Carrie. Kat Chow's new memoir is calling Seeing Ghosts. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is a show about big books and bold ideas. Now to foodie fiction, in which I immerse you in the taste and textures and aromas of a dish that appears in a book, and you follow my clues to name that dish in that book. When you've got the answer, tweet me at Carrie NPR. Ready? If you hold this palm-sized parcel of sweetness in your hand, the candy ginger will glimmer and catch the light. And the tiny chocolate flakes will mix with the scent of flowers to make your mouth water. In fact, these cookies are so elegant that the baker in this novel is told her sweets could be jewels around the neck of Marie Antoinette. Much of this novel, set in a coastal southern city, unfolds in a kitchen and a bakery as our characters create and happily consume delectable pastries. But there's a darkness to this novel as well. A child, too young to leave home, has gone her own way and slipped into a world that is dissolute and dangerous. And the city in which this family lives is increasingly a glaring portrait of income inequality. One more clue. The writer of this novel grew up in the Northeast but spent some formative years in the Middle East which is where she honed her appreciation for the cultural currency of sharing good food. 
So your foodie fiction challenge? What is that gem of a cookie I described? And in which novel did it appear? When you figured it out, tweet me at Carrie NPR.